Thank you, Maria. I mean, Rachel. Um, <laughs> it's beautiful. You, you all know that song, right? Uh, I mean, that song, in case there are any of you who've been hiding under a rock since 1965, uh, is from the 1959 Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, musical, and six years later, the movie, The Sound of Music. In My Favorite Things, Maria describes all the things that make her feel better when she's uh, sad, raindrops on roses, you know, whiskers on kittens. The song appears in a scene in the film when the Von Trapp children that she's caring for, she's their nanny, are frightened by a thunderstorm, and they all come to her room for comfort. And she sings this song to, to, you know, make them feel better. And a lot of the things mentioned in the song don't cost anything, right? Raindrops on roses, those are free. Silver, white winters, that, that, that's free. <laughs> um, decades later, the favorite things concept, though, became more materialistic. And this especially happened when Oprah Win- Winfrey adapted this, adopted this, and kind of made it part of her celebration of Christmas. And she had, every year there's an episode when the Oprah Winfrey show was on of My Favorite Things, and it was just all the cool new stuff that's coming out for Christmas. And, you know, you get one, and you get one, and you get one. And it became kind of a holiday buying guide because of that. You know, know, DVD player, designer jeans, or, or whatever. And because of that association, people began to associate that song with Christmas. And it ended up on lots of Christmas playlists. It wasn't originally written to be a Christmas song. (laughs) But what if it is? What if maybe it's a Christmas song in disguise? What if the favorite things it encouraged us to think about were not material things or even beautiful things in God's creation, but rather the themes of Christmas, the themes of Advent, this season leading up to Christmas when we we look at what God has done in the person of Jesus? Because when I think of my favorite things, hope, and peace, and joy, and love. That's pretty top-tier stuff. <laughs> We're going to talk about that this month. Thank you for being here, for joining us in the room. Grateful that you're here today or watching online. Thanks for logging in. If you're new here, I'd love to meet you. My name's Casey. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, when we're finished today, I should be down front. Please come down and say hi. I'd love to greet you personally and thank you for being here. And as Kyle mentioned earlier, take a second, fill out your connection card. Helps us disciple you uh, better. We're starting a new Advent series today called A Few of My Favorite Things, an, an obvious reference to the song of the same title. We're going to be talking about the themes of Advent and what it is that makes them so great. Because I believe that a major part of what makes Christmas so great is that in celebrating the birth of Jesus, our hearts are reoriented toward these values of hope and peace and joy and love. And those matter more than anything. Today we're talking about the idea of hope. Here's the big idea this morning. Christmas is a guarantee that all our most important hopes will be realized. And by realized, I mean not necessarily comprehended or understood, but made real, made manifest. 
See, the birth of Jesus tells us that our hope is not just some kind of pie-in-the-sky-by-and-by hope. It's not a wild or a fool's hope, as Gandalf says in The Lord of the Rings. It's not just a someday kind of hope, though there is a very real someday component to it. And very often in more liturgical churches, the first Sunday of Advent is reading about the second return of Jesus. There's an eschatological emphasis to that. That's a real part of it. But I believe that Christmas is designed to tell us that our hope is realized. It's made manifest, even now. (laughs) Yes, there's a not yet component, and that's very important, but there's also a now component that we dare not forget. See, all of you have a Christmas list, at least in your mind. Maybe you haven't written it down, but you at least have one in your mind. And maybe not everything on it is physical. There might be some intangibles on there. For those whose kids have grown and left the home and had kids of their own, your might be, I just want everybody around the table. That's all I want. I just want everybody at the table, you know? Others of you might, I want a PS5, you know, or whatever. Uh, I want a virtual reality rig. I don't know what's on your list, you know, a puppy, whatever it is. Um, People keep asking us, like, are you guys going to ever get a dog? No. We have seven children. What? Dog. Why do we need a dog? Um, Anyway, um, so everybody has something on their list, right? (laughs) So I guess here's my question. If you had something on your list... that you could guarantee that you would get if you took everything else off. Would you do that? If there was one thing on that list that you could say, in order to guarantee I get this, I'll, I'll delete everything, would you do it? Because Christmas is a guarantee that God knows the hopes of your heart and is working to meet that need. Christmas is a guarantee of that. And we go all the way back to ancient history to see this play out. In order to understand that, that how, how Christmas is a guarantee that all our most important hopes will be realized, we really have to go all the way back into the history of Israel to see this. I think we see this two ways. First of all, we see that, that Jesus coming into the world is Israel's ancient hope fulfilled. Jesus' entrance into the world at Christmas is Israel's ancient hope fulfilled. In the time of Jesus... The people of Israel had high hopes that the time of the Messiah was coming near. They were primed and ready. So when John appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, preaching, you best get ready, the king is coming. When he appears and he's doing this, the people have this high expectation I mean, they're ready, they're primed, they're looking for the Messiah. When Jesus appears on the scene and he begins teaching and healing and doing miracles and restoring sight to the blind and and giving, um, you know, life to the dead, they're ready. Huge crowds follow Jesus. They could see that they were near to receiving what they hoped for most. So what were Israel's ancient hopes? I think they cluster around three ideas. There There were lots of them, but they really cluster around three ideas. Here's the first one. They hoped that God would be with his people. They hoped that God would be with his people. 
And this is a consistent theme all through the Old Testament. I mean, all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis, right? It says that in the cool of the day, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. God was with his people. Fast forward into the time of Moses. And in the wilderness, God commands the people of Israel to build the tabernacle, the the symbol of his presence among them. And where does he tell them to, to set up the tabernacle? In the middle of the camp. Israel encamped around the presence of God. Why? Because he wants to be with his people. Later, Solomon builds the temple and he situates it in Jerusalem, which is dead smack in the middle of the land of Israel. Several hundred years go by. And you've got this king, Ahaz. He's not a good man. His wife is worse. You know her name. She's Jezebel. God is trying to woo Ahaz back to him. He's trying to get Ahaz to come back. And so he says, ask for a sign. Anything you want, I'll do it. I just just want you, Ahaz. I want to be with you. And he gets all self-righteous. I'm not going to ask God. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, even though he said to do it. (laughs) And God says, fine. And we read in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. 700 years later, an angel appeared to Joseph in Nazareth and says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. That's Matthew talking, and here he quotes Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And then Matthew kicks back in the parenthetical, which means God with us. Israel's hope was that God would be with them. And in the person of Jesus, God fulfilled that hope. (laughs) He came and dwelt among them, John 1 says. He tabernacled with them. That hope was fulfilled in Jesus, but but that's not all. You see, they also hoped for a righteous king. They wanted a righteous king. Israel's history with monarchy was, you know, for the most part, a pretty sad story. I mean, God intended to be their king. He was hurt when they asked for a king. But he acquiesced. Okay, you've got to understand that this is not going to work out the way you think. He warns them. Saul failed. David succeeded, but he was deeply flawed. Solomon brought great glories, but he didn't disciple his kids. And so the kingdom split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And it's just, other than a few moments of revival in the southern kingdom of Judah, it's just kind of one tragedy after another. But again, Isaiah offers hope. In trying to draw the people back to their covenant with God, the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for to us 
a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. What's that mean? He's gonna be the head of state. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, probably come back to this next week. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice, justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal, the passionate, righteous fervor of God will accomplish this. Now we read these verses, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace at Christmas time, and we go, oh, warm, fuzzy, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, I mean, yeah, it's great, but keep going. (laughs) Because what it's talking about is the rule and reign of God over his people. Israel longed for a righteous king. Like, they desperately, I mean, there were a few good ones along the way. Hezekiah, Josiah, you know, David, hit or miss. <laughs> but they, they wanted that. They wanted a king who would, who would reign in righteousness. Some of you are like, we're Americans, I don't, I don't understand that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And what do you mean? I'm not gonna say which election, but just think of the most recent ones. Did any of you feel like, these are our choices? Really? This is the best we can do, right? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. I felt that way. I was like, seriously? this, This is the best we've got, really? Imagine if you had no choice. They're in charge now. Ugh, not that guy. He's an idiot. He's not, he's not, he's not good. Israel longed for a righteous king. Someone who would exercise supreme executive authority with righteousness. See, which leads really into their next hope, which is the idea of they longed for true justice. In the original Hebrew, righteousness and justice are related words. Much of the law of Moses focuses on the idea of making sure that God's people do justice. The law was designed to promote a fair and just culture. The kings were supposed to guarantee justice for their people, and they receive the harshest critiques from the prophets when they don't make good on that guarantee. The people were supposed to guarantee that justice was done in their business dealings, and they receive critique from God when they don't. And I would be so bold as to say that while we do not live in a theocracy, God's values that way have not changed. He still wants his people to do justice. He still wants those who lead them to lead with justice and righteousness. When Jesus came, the long-held hope that God's people had for true justice to be done was fulfilled. I mean, Acts 8, or excuse me, John 8, the woman caught in adultery. You know, it's just as an image of Jesus doing justice. She's caught in adultery. Uh, Last I checked, that takes two people. Where's the guy? They're, They're picking up rocks to stone her. 
And Jesus says, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. He says, starting with the oldest first, they, they put their rocks down. And he says to her, woman, where are those who accuse you? And there's just nobody, sir. He said, neither then do I accuse you. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's justice. He saved her life and then urged her to live in righteousness. The people long for that. Our our hearts, we hope for that. We want that. Jesus fulfilled it. We also see it in Matthew chapter 12. There's this plot to kill him, and, and we see this in Matthew 12, 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He's going to quote Isaiah 42, 1 to 4 here. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope Again, we read this and we go, oh yes, Jesus, he's so gentle. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And we get so focused on the gentleness of Jesus that we miss that his being gentle is part of his mission to do justice. He doesn't come in, (laughs) guns blazing. I'm gonna make some justice. No. He does it through gentleness. He's not screaming in the streets. He's making disciples. He's changing the world one person at a time. That's part of how Jesus accomplishes justice. And when he does that, the nations put their hope. You think that's not a reference to Acts 2? I sure do. I will never forget this. 20 years ago, we're sitting in a church building in Vacaville, California, just outside Sacramento. Debbie and I were there for our our church planter training through Stadia. It was a week-long intensive uh, week of training they called church planter boot camp. And we get this binder of, of here's how to plant a church, like in one inch and a half thick binder. That's everything you need to know. Yeah, right. Um, And you open it up, and the very first page there, it just says, plastered across the page in huge letters, hope is not a strategy. (laughs) Man, that was true. You can't just move to the place and hope that people show up. You actually have to go talk to some lost people. And you've got to have a plan for that. And then what are we going to do to disciple them? And and the whole point of this was to encourage you to have strategic steps for people to to move through in their discipleship to Jesus. And how are we going to get this church going? And where are you going to meet? And how are you going to fund it? And all that stuff. We had to go through all those things. Hope is not a strategy. And when you're planting a new church, that's true. But God operates, I think, on a higher level. He intentionally uses hope as a strategy to whet our appetite for what he and only he can do so that he can fulfill these hopes that we have far beyond our expectations. And I think we see this clearest in the coming of Jesus into the world at Christmas. Because not only did Jesus fulfill Israel's hope, but he made our hopes manifest. I mean, yes, Jesus fulfilled Israel's ancient hope, but in coming into the world, Jesus makes our present hope 
manifest, makes it real, makes us able to see it. Like I said, Israel's hopes tend to cluster around three ideas, and ours are similar, though they are, um, you know, a, a greater, they're an expansion on it. They're a greater realization of it. Their ancient hopes are very similar to our modern ones. Israel hoped that God would be with his people. What we hope for is we don't want to be alone. And so the way that Jesus fulfills our hope is that you're never alone. Because of Christmas, we're never alone. Israel wanted God to be with them. In Christmas, in Jesus' entry into our existence, we we see that God says, I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not going to be alone. I'm going to be with you. And so in his incarnation, he became one of us. Certainly that's a way that God says we're not alone, but it goes deeper than that. It goes richer than that. Because for those who have acknowledged the lordship of Jesus, who have yielded their life to him as Savior and Lord, for those who have received his spirit to live in them, God says, I want to be with you so much, I'm going to be in you. I'm I'm going to live, you are never going to be alone because I will be with you forever, inside you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. when, When you respond to the gospel, God says you will never, ever be alone again for the rest of your life. The gospel is the message that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin, and you needed him to. Because when you sin, when you, when, when you go against God's way of living, you become, Romans says, an object of God's wrath. And as Ephesians 2.12 says, you are without hope and without God in this world. We need Jesus to take away our sin. And so God sent him to die on the cross in our place for our sins to redeem us, to buy us back for him, to save us. And because of that salvation, you're never alone ever again for the rest of your life. And this is so important at Christmas time. I want you to think about the idea that you could be the living embodiment of Advent hope to somebody this Christmas. Probably all of you know someone who's going to be alone for the first time this Christmas. Maybe their spouse passed. Maybe they've moved far away from friends and family. They're new here. Can I encourage you to be hope for them this Christmas? If you know someone, if there's somebody in your circle that you believe and you have any reasonable expectation that they're going to be alone this Christmas, let me tell you, that is a crisis. It should be in your eyes. (laughs) Christmas falls on a Sunday this year. I love it when that happens. We're going to have one service at 10 o'clock, everybody together. So get here early because someone might be in your seat. (laughs) It's so fun for me to watch, to stand up here, watch people come in, they look. You're in my seat. That's my seat in the other service. Anyway, um, it's awesome. We're going to have one service, right? Pastor Daniel has told the kids they can wear their jammies. You cannot. Oh, I know. Here's the thing, Bob. I don't know what you call jammies. That's a moving target, y'all. But you can come casual. Jeans and a flannel shirt, that's cool. You want to dress up for Christmas Eve on Saturday, awesome, and then come casual on Christmas Day, that's fantastic. That's what I'm going to do, okay? (laughs) Listen, 
So we're going to be done on Christmas Day by like 11.30. Be out of here. You know, on home. If you know someone who's going to be alone, that is a crisis. It should be in your eyes. One of our values here is radical hospitality. Would you open your home on Christmas Day? If you know someone who's going to be alone, invite them now. Go home today and call them and say, hey, um, why don't you come to my house for lunch or even dinner if you want a little more time. The coming of Jesus means that we're not alone. He fulfills, he makes, makes manifest that hope. You will never be alone again the rest of your life. That's one thing. Here's the second one. We have a clean conscience. I mean, Israel longed for a righteous king, right? They wanted a king who would do the right thing. But God tells us, I'm gonna send my son. He's gonna live with you and then eventually in you so that you can be righteous so that you can live a righteous life. And in order to do that, I'm gonna to have to clean you out. And part of what Christmas means is that the moral perfection of Jesus, his righteousness is available to us. What that means for a significant portion of the Christmas message is that the God who has come to us is the one who cleans our conscience. I think this is what the writer of Hebrews had in mind. And to the people at Jeopardy, it was not Paul. Um, if you saw that, anyway, <laughs> thank you. One, Mac, I appreciate that. One person, anyway, it was on Jeopardy this week. They, they attributed the book of Hebrews to Paul. It wasn't him. We don't know who wrote it. It wasn't Paul. Okay, anyway, so um, Hebrews chapter 10 says this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for the one who promised is faithful. One of the reasons that hope is one of my favorite things is that Jesus allows my hope of having a clean conscience to be realized, to be made manifest. Jesus comes in, he cleans, he cleans your conscience. He makes you right with God. He and, and even then, he, and then, not only that, but he gives you the power to resist the urge to do evil. My preaching professor, Wayne Shaw, he's with the Lord now. But I remember him saying this. He said, there's no pillow so soft as a clean conscience. One of, the, one of our hopes at Christmas is that you get to have a clean conscience. That God washes away your sin. He makes you right with him, and he puts in you the power to resist the urge to do evil, which really leads then to this final hope that we have that's made manifest at Christmas time, and it's that evil is destroyed. Our, our, our hope that Jesus makes manifest is that God would destroy evil. Just like Israel longed for true justice and received it in Jesus, we also long for ultimate justice. We want Jesus to destroy evil. John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Our hope at Christmas is that our God is at work to destroy evil. I think that's what Peter was describing in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I want to look at this passage. This, by the way, for you Bible nerds, this is one long run-on sentence in Greek. There's no punctuation. It just goes on and on and on. Grammar people, I'm sorry, it's a horrible run-on. They've tried to correct it in English, but you'll just have to live with it because this is beautiful. Look at this. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. It's not fake, it's not dead, it's alive, it's real. This hope for you at Christmas is real through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. See, there's that future emphasis here. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Look at this, verse nine. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, did you catch what he says? Look at this in verse nine. Look at this again. You are receiving. That word is loaded with meaning. That is the hope of Christmas. That's what this is about. My brothers and sisters, do you understand how awesome this is? We are already receiving this. Because of the hope of Christmas, Jesus is giving this to us now. The word translated receiving here is a part of speech that means they're currently experiencing this and will continue to experience this, but also present in that word is the idea that this is the result of something that God has done and in which we are participating. The hope of Christmas says that God is beginning his redemptive, he's doing his redemptive work now. He, he's working in, in you and in our world to destroy evil now. That gives us hope. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God. Hope of glory because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. With all due respect to Brother Packer, there's more to it than that. And I know that he says that elsewhere. But I think sometimes, sometimes we can get this kind of out of whack. We can say, oh, the reason Jesus came was to die so I can get right with God. Okay, maybe in its simplest, yeah. But church, there's more to it than that. See, what gives me hope is, is, not, is not this someday thing. I mean, that's great, and I'm looking forward to it, yes. But what gives me real hope is that I'm, I'm not alone anymore. And I've got a clean conscience. And God is at work in me and using me in the world to destroy evil. That gives me hope now. That starts today. That starts right now when you believe in Jesus. Henry Nouwen, the theologian, tried to define Christmas, and he wrote this. Songs, good feelings, beautiful liturgies, nice presents, big dinners, and sweet words do not make Christmas. Christmas is saying yes to something beyond all emotions and feelings. Christmas is saying yes to a hope based on God's initiative, which has nothing to do with, how I think, or with what I think or feel. Christmas is believing that the salvation of the world is God's work and not mine. See, Jesus fulfilled all Israel's hopes, whether they realized it or not. And he fulfills all of ours too, and I sure hope you realize that today. 
Because of Jesus' entrance into the world at Christmas time, Israel's ancient hopes are fulfilled and our present hopes are made manifest. Did you hear me this morning? Christmas is a guarantee that our most important hopes will be realized. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if you have hope in something that can't be fulfilled in Jesus, you probably put your hope in the wrong thing. So what are you hoping for this Christmas? I want to urge you to hope not for more presence under the tree, but for more of his presence in your life and in our community. As Paul said in Ephesians, if you've not given your life to Jesus, you don't have that hope. So do not walk out of this room without it. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And I want to urge you, if you've never acknowledged Christ as Savior and Lord and been baptized and received the Spirit and begun that walk of discipleship, to not walk out of this room until you've done that. And so as we sing, I would I urge you to come forward and claim that hope that we have in Christ. Be baptized. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just kind of, you know, hanging on to a ragged hope. Just like, I, I really just, hope is a struggle today. <laughs> And so we're going to have an opportunity for you to come forward. We'd love to pray with you and pray for you. If, if you'd like some, a pastor to pray with you, Fred will be down front. I'll be down front. Um, we'd, we'd love to come alongside you and, and help hearten you and, and, and pray hope over you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you today.